got your copy of God's Word, I want to encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 9. This morning we are continuing our journey through Matthew, but through a different lens. This morning we're looking at a series of messages that we're going to call Sent by the King. Because ultimately it's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who does the sending. He's the one who gives the commands, he gives the orders, and gives us the directions to go as we serve him. This morning, we're looking at the closing section of chapter 9, and it's a reminder of what is our job, what is our calling, what is our commission as a child of God, and what does it mean to be sent by the king? What does that look like in my life? What does that look like in your life as well? If you have your copy of God's Word open, we're going to start in verse 35. We're going through verse 38 this morning. And I know what some of you are already thinking. You're already doing the math in your head. That's only four verses. Obviously, we won't be here that long. But my intent this morning is there's a lot to unpack in these four verses. There's some reminders for us as children of God in these four verses. Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 35. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. That's the command and that's the prayer we see this morning. But I want to start our time introducing you to a couple. I want to introduce you this morning to Adnarim and Anna Judson. Never heard of them, I know. But these two individuals are compared to William Carey, who's known as the first missionary from England to go to India and share the gospel. Adoniram and Anna Judson are from Salem, Massachusetts, and they are the first known missionaries to leave North America to go and share the gospel. On February 18th of 1812, Ananaram and Anna boarded a ship and set sail for India. From India, they arrived in the country of Burma to lead and share the gospel with a people who had never heard the gospel. Went by boat on this long trip, and they get to their location these were two of our earliest Baptist missionaries who went to share the gospel because of a calling on their heart. And Adoniram, which is the, really a cool name, and he's named after his father, who's also Adoniram, who was a preacher as well. But Adoniram felt this call to go into the mission field and felt God burdening his heart to go and share Jesus. And he was in love with Anna. And he needed to ask her father's permission to marry her. So he writes 
the father-in-law to be a letter. And their story is in the book called The Golden Shore, written in 1956. And if you, as you read through their story, you see their drive, you see their passion, you see their heart. But I want to read a portion of the letter that Adoniram wrote to his soon-to-be father-in-law about asking Anna to be his wife. And listen to what he says in this letter. I now have to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and suffering of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness brightened from the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. Adoniram writes to Anne's father and says, will you consent, knowing that you'll never see your daughter again, that you'll never get to talk to her again? For the glory of God and for kingdom work, can you consent to the fact that she may endure hardship, that she may be persecuted, that she could die for sharing the gospel? Well, I want to share with you, Anna does die sharing the gospel. She's murdered by a people group who didn't know who she was. But she still endured for the gospel. Adoniram would go on to write the scriptures, the New Testament, in Burmese language so those people could hear the gospel. But imagine being this father-in-law. Imagine being this man who receives this letter from this young man who wants to marry your daughter and says, can you consent to this? Can you consent to what's going to happen? Ultimately, her dad said yes. And a year later, they're married and they set sail for Burma, knowing that he would never see her again, but knowing that the gospel would be proclaimed to a people who had never heard it. That's the power of the gospel. And what we see in the lives of these two individuals is because of Adoniram and Anna's dedication and because of their ministry, over 4,000 Baptist churches have come from their starting. And it's estimated that more than a half a million people accepted Jesus Christ over the course of the foundation and ground they've laid. And continues to be laid today in that part of the world. The story of Adoniram and Anna Judson is lived out in these verses we just read in Matthew 9. But we're going to see as we continue this journey through this, this, this sermon series sent by the king. We're going to see it as we get into chapter 10 as well. For the last number of weeks, we've been looking at the authority of Jesus. His authority over all these things. And there's a danger here, church. 
there's a danger to think, well, that authority only applies to me because I'm a child of God. But his authority is available for everyone who says yes to him. What we see this morning in our passage of Scripture is we see Jesus continuing what he's been showing us through his authority. His authority over sickness, disease, death, the disciples, the authority to save, the authority over sin. We have seen that on this journey as we've gotten to this point in Scripture. And here is the reminder this morning as we read about Adonai and Anna. We are living in a lost world. We are living in a world right now, listen very carefully, we are living in a world right now that if you, if you as an individual do not go and talk to your family member, your co-worker, your friend, and tell them about Jesus Christ, they are going to spend eternity in hell. That is the reality. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world that is suffering through sin in so many different trials. And we live in a world that needs to hear the good news. To know that Jesus has this authority and can be a part of their life and help them through the struggles they are dealing with. That this is good news for everyone who's willing to accept this gift of salvation. It's for the person who lives next door. It's for the person that you see at work. It's for the person you go to school with. And this morning, something I want you to think about as we dive into this passage of Scripture is this. We don't live to celebrate the good news. We live to spread the good news. Think about that, church. We don't live just to celebrate we're going to heaven. We sang to him, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. Will it be a day of rejoicing, yes or no? But shouldn't it be a day of rejoicing for everyone? It's not just for me. It's not just for you. It should be everyone who is in our circle of influence, our circle of friends. Especially those who don't know Jesus Christ. For those who are separated and going to spend eternity in hell because we haven't done what God has commanded us to do. And I think there's a reason why we're not doing that. I think there's a reason why we're not going and telling, and we're not going and sharing. We're wanting to celebrate, but we're forgetting the share part, the spread part. I know I've shared this story a hundred times. But I remember, let me back up. I'm going to shift gears because my brain's going one direction. I want to go another direction. How many of you, when you were much, much, some of you much, much younger, Christmas morning, when you got something cool, how many of you wanted to tell your best friend you got something cool for Christmas? We all did. This, and teenagers, this is before we could just snap them or text them or Facebook them. We had to wait until school break got over so we'd go back to school. But you were excited because you wanted to tell that person what you got for Christmas or what you got for a birthday. Or when something major happens in your life, you want to share that with people you know and love and care about. So why wouldn't we want to share the good news of Jesus Christ who saved me from spending eternity separated? Why wouldn't I want to share that with those who don't know him? The problem is we'd rather celebrate than share. One of the reasons that we're going to take part this coming Saturday in the Kiwanis Pumpkin Patch is not to put a spotlight on Reedsville Baptist. It's not to go out there and say, look at us. 
It's to go out there and share about what God is doing and letting people become a part of that. The goal is to be able to invite people to come and worship with us, to invite them to come and what's, see what's happening on Sunday nights in our church. That's the goal of these kind of events. To not celebrate what's happening, but to spread and share the good news. In the scripture we just looked at, there's two things I want us to look at this morning as we're starting this journey through this understanding of being sent by the king. And the first is this, is we need to see the condition of the lost. We need to see the condition of the lost. Adoniram and Anna Judson risked their reputation to share the gospel with a people group they'd never met before. How many of you this morning are willing to risk your reputation in school? High school, middle school, elementary, college. How many of you are willing to risk your reputation to let others know you're a follower of Jesus Christ? Those of you who go into work on Monday morning, on Tuesday morning, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, how many of you are willing to risk your reputation to let others know that you're a believer and that Jesus Christ is the center of your life? We celebrate knowing Jesus, but we forget the spread, and because we're not looking at the condition of the lost, because we don't see him as lost. Look with me again, starting in verse 35. Jesus is going from city to city, village to village, and he's teaching. Scripture says he's teaching, he is preaching, and he is healing. He's doing those three things as he goes. Because that's what he is called to do. That is him showing the world his authority. His authority to heal sickness. His authority to teach the good news. His authority to preach the gospel. But in these verses, we see Jesus' heart. His desire for people to hear. But then we have this moment. This moment that takes place in verse 36. The first part of verse 36 says, But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them. Notice what takes place in this verse. We can break this verse down to three little sections. Here we go. The first one is this. I want you to see their size. In order to see the condition of the lost, we need to see their size. It says, when Jesus saw the multitudes. And I'm putting my friend on the spot this morning. He does not know I'm fixing to do this. So I know he loves me and he'll, he'll still appreciate me. Norm. What is the definition of a multitude? You're a math person. I am not. What is the definition of a multitude? <laughs> he says multitude in these. Thank you. That's the answer I was hoping for. That's why I went to you. But the multitude, it doesn't give us a number. Let me give you a picture here. Remember, Jesus is ministering in Galilee, which is a region it's the northern part of Israel. It's around the Sea of Galilee to the west of it and going towards the north. It is estimated there are about 200 villages slash cities in the region. Taking those 200 cities and regions, the best possible numbers, it's believed that the population in this region may have been close to 3 million people. Just in that region. 
Scripture says when Jesus saw the multitudes, he sees the size of the people who need to hear the gospel. Notice he doesn't say he saw one person. He didn't see ten people. He didn't see a thousand. It says he sees the multitudes. And when he sees the multitudes, notice what it says in verse 36. Notice the wording. It says he's moved with compassion. He's moved with compassion. What the text literally is telling us, he is in agony. He's looking out. He sees the multitude of people and realizes that these are people who are lost and going to be separated for eternity because they don't know the God of the heavens. They don't know the God of the glory, the God who's going to send his son to die for their sins. They're not seeing that at this moment. But Jesus sees the multitude. He sees the hurting. He sees the suffering. He sees those who are struggling. He sees it and understands the condition of the lost just looking at the size around him. He sees those that are hurting. He sees those that are struggling. And how many of us, how many of us this morning, when we know somebody is hurting, we know somebody is struggling, how many of us, that our heart starts to burst for them? Because we hurt for them too. We see someone we care about, someone that we love, going through a situation, and we're moved. We are moved with agony because of what they're dealing with. We're moved with agony because of what they're suffering. Because we see their condition, what they're dealing with. The problem is, and we learned this a few weeks ago, it's not about the physical condition we need to be paying attention to. It's paying attention to the spiritual condition. That's what Jesus is pointing out here in this verse. He sees the multitude and he has compassion for them. And with that compassion, not only does he see their size, but he can feel their suffering. He can feel the suffering that they are enduring. The second part of verse 36. Why does he have compassion for them? Why is he paying attention to the multitude? Verse 36. Because they were weary and scattered. They are weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. They're weary. They're worn out. They're scattered. That word weary in the New King James is also translated as harassed. They are harassed. He sees the multitude and sees that they're harassed. He sees they're weary. He sees that they're tired. He sees that they are struggling and they're scattered because they're not following anyone. They're not listening to anyone. They're trying to do their own thing. They're trying to live their life based on their decisions and what they think is best for their life. They're more concerned about pleasures. They're more concerned about pursuits. And they're more concerned about what other people think about them and how can they be satisfied. But the problem is they're trying to find satisfaction apart from God. So they're walking down a road that has no end, that leads to nothing. They think they're on a road that's going to get them a better job. They're on a road that's going to help them in their relationship. They're on a road that's going to make them have everything they could ever dream of or ever desire. And it's a road that leads nowhere because it's an empty road. 
Yet you and I know this because Jesus understood it because he knows their condition. He sees a crowd, they're not going to admit it, but he sees a crowd who is desperately looking for someone to lead them. They're looking for a shepherd. Notice the verse, sheep having no shepherd. They are wandering, they need somebody to lead them, but they're not willing to listen to the right voice. So he sees these people, he sees them, he sees their size, he feels their suffering. But here's what else he realizes about these people, is that he realizes their separation. They're experiencing separation. He sees them, has compassion because they're sheep who are going astray. But then he says in verse 37, he says in that verse, and he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. That word harvest, the word harvest, it's a word you ought to underline in your Bible because in most cases, it has a totally different meaning than what Jesus is talking about, but he's going to bring us back to the right meaning on the word harvest. If you look through Scripture, a lot of times the word harvest is associated with judgment. It's what God's going to do because the people are not listening, the people are not obeying and following what he has for them. Take your Bibles for just a moment. Turn over to Joel chapter 3. And we're going to come back to Matthew in just a moment. But turn over to Joel chapter 3. And I want you to see what I'm talking about when the word harvest being associated with judgment. Joel chapter 3. And we're going to be looking at verses 13 and 14. Just to remind you, Joel is a minor prophet. And so sometimes you can pass over Joel and not even find him. But in Joel chapter 3, starting in verse 13, if you're trying to still find Joel, it's between Hosea and Amos. And now somebody is saying, well, where's Amos? <laughs> but in Joel chapter 3, Joel chapter 3 is a picture of harvest as judgment. Look at me starting in verse 13. Put, this, put in the sickle for the harvest is right. Come go down for the winepress is full and the vats overflow for their wickedness is great. Multitudes and multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. We know that the phrase the day of the Lord is near is judgment. We know God's coming and we need to be ready for when God comes. He says in verse 13, he says the wine press is full and the vats overflow for their wickedness is great. And the image is taking the sickle and going through the wine, going through the vines and destroying them because there's too much going on and they're overrunning and they're doing their own thing. There's nothing can controlling them in their growth and he says the Lord's day is coming that's a picture of the harvest as judgment you don't have to turn there but if you're a person who's taking notes and want to go back and look later Matthew chapter 13 Jesus talks about harvest and a judgment he talks about the separation of the wheat and the tares 
He says, the wheat are the righteous. They're the ones that are going to inherit the kingdom. The tares are the unrighteous. And over in Matthew 13, over in verse 42, it says that God's going to take those tares and throw them into the furnace. That's a picture of judgment, of separating. The tares don't know who Jesus is. The wheat is a follower of Jesus. And so Jesus knows the day is coming. He knows that the day is coming and the harvest is going to be collected and the righteous and the unrighteous are going to be separated. So when you go back to Matthew chapter 9, he looks at the harvest, he looks at the people. And what he's reminding us is he sees that harvest, he sees those people. And he knows they need a savior. They need to hear the good news because he understands their condition. In the condition they're in right now, they are lost and separated for eternity. If nothing changes, those who don't say yes to Jesus Christ are going to stand one day before God and be cast into eternal darkness because they never said yes to the gift of salvation. That's why Jesus has so much compassion for him. That's why Jesus is moved with agony and hurt because he knows the condition of these people. They are lost. And again, sometimes we don't see that picture. We don't understand that picture. So let me make it even bigger. Make it even bigger. We live in a world of 8 million people. Eight billion, not million, sorry. Billion, I got to add another letter to it. If you're a math person, it's actually around 7.8, but we're going to round up. But here's the math. And I shared this some with our Tuesday Bible study group. It is estimated of that eight million, eight billion, why am I saying million? Because I've never said billion before. <laughs> eight billion. And I've got it in my notes, and I'm still saying it wrong. Of that 8 billion, 2.6 billion, one-third are said to be Christians in the whole world. 2.6 billion are said to be Christians, that they know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But here is the problem, church. That leaves 5.4 billion lost and going to hell. Let that number sink in. 5.4 billion are lost and going to spend eternity separated from the Father forever. That number should scare us. That number should put a desire in our heart to want to go and tell other people about Jesus Christ, to go and share the good news, to see the condition of a lost world around us but the problem is i don't think we realize and understand the gravity when it comes to eternity do we understand that there are people there are more people more concerned about sports money and success than they are about being eternally lost and here's the other part church we're guilty you realize we will talk about everything but jesus we will talk about everything but Jesus. We'll talk about everything but what God is doing in my life or in your life. 
We see somebody we know, and where do the conversations usually go? How was work? How was this? How was that? And I am as guilty as you are. But when's the last time any of us walked to somebody, whether that's somebody we know in this church, and say, hey, how's your quiet time going this week? How's your prayer life been? Or take it a step further. Those that we go to school with, that we see every day, that we work with, who are lost. Are you looking for opportunities to share the gospel with them? Jesus just said that the harvest is there. The harvest is there. There are people who are ready to hear. I joked with the Tuesday bunch, my math is horrible. That's why I married somebody smarter than me. I mean, you can say amen because y'all did the same thing. Thank you. But when I look at that number behind me, 8 billion, 2.6 billion, 5.4 billion. That there are 5.4 billion people that are going to be lost, separated for eternity. Here's the thing, though. I'm not telling you to do like the Judsons did and get in a boat and go on the other side of the world. Sharing the gospel is just as easy as going to the person who lives next door to you. The person who works in the cubicle next to you. The same person you see at the gas station every morning. But we don't see the gravity of this. We don't see it and it doesn't bother us. Because we're not looking at the condition of the lost. We know the authority of the king. We've seen it all through chapter 9. And he gets to this section and says, listen, I have this authority... But I need you to see the people like I see them. Did you notice who he's talking to in this verse? When we get to verse 37, look who he directs the statement to. Not the crowds, not the multitudes that he's been talking to. In verse 37, he said to his disciples. A disciple is a follower of Jesus Christ. So in essence, he's talking to me, he's talking to you, when he says in verse 37, the harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. Because we don't see the world through the eyes that Jesus sees it. We don't see the world as lost. And here it is, we don't have time. You and I don't have time to waste on things like our pleasures, our pursuits, our possessions, when there is something indefinitely more important than all those things. You and I have something to offer those around us that's going to change their life for eternity, and that's having a relationship with Jesus Christ. So in being sent by the king, it starts with seeing the condition of the lost, but I think there's another thing. And we're going to dive more into this next week, but I want to kind of jump into it to finish out chapter 9. Is as a believer in Jesus Christ, you and I have the commission of Christ. We've been given a commission. We've been told what to do. Verse 38. Verse 38 is the first instruction he's going to give us. Leading into chapter 10, which we'll unpack starting next week. But in light of looking at the harvest and knowing there are people, there are people who are lost, going to spend eternity separated from God. In light of all this, look what Jesus says in verse 38. 
Therefore pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The first thing that Jesus is calling me to do this morning and he's calling you to do is simply this. Jesus beckons us to pray. I like the word beckon better, better, better than the word plead. He beckons us. He desires for us to Listen, he doesn't say, and look at this picture with me. He doesn't say, hey, there's the harvest, go. He says, there's the harvest, pray. He doesn't tell us to go yet. The first direction is to pray. When Adoniram was thinking about India, he didn't say, you know what, Anna, we're going to get married and we're going to go tell Jesus, to go talk about Jesus to a lost world. No, he spent days and weeks and months and literally years praying about this before he even stepped foot on that boat with his wife. He prayed. The command that you and I have, the commission you and I have from Jesus Christ this morning is to be praying Praying for opportunities, praying for those who are lost and going to hell. But we're not praying for them because we don't see their condition. But once we notice the condition, we see the size, we see what they're dealing with, now we have this commission to go and pray. Now he's going to tell us to go eventually, but right now he says pray. He says pray that God would send laborers, send those into the harvest. He's saying, listen, you need to be praying for people to go and serve, for people to leave and go into the mission field to tell others about my son. The church should be about sending, not about staying. It should be about going and telling and sharing. But the problem that you and I run into is we don't even consider the possibility that God could be calling me or calling you to go proclaim the gospel somewhere. You know what we'll do? When God puts that thought in our heart, we'll go, no, God, you don't want me. No, God, there's somebody way better than I am. Surely you're not talking, you don't want me to go. You know who I am? I don't have time. I got other things. I've got life. I got family. I got obligations. You want me to do what? We don't think about it in that context. And because we don't think about the idea that God would send someone like me, someone like you to share the gospel, we put it the farthest thing from our mind, and we don't see the call that God has placed in our lives. We sometimes fight it. We sometimes ignore it. Think about it. What if Adoniram had chosen to ignore God's call in his life? What if he had chosen when God said, hey, I want you to go, he said, no, I'm not going. I don't want to go there, God. I want to serve in a church and be happy. I want to raise children and be happy. Nowhere in Adoniram's thought was that, was that thought because he saw the hurt. He saw the need. And he answered the call. There have been others who have gone after him. I think of Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott was a missionary who went to Peru to share the gospel with a group of people who had never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he was burdened. He was burdened. He made this statement. He said that young men are going into other fields because they don't feel called to the mission field. And then I love the next statement. He says, we don't need a call. We need a kick in the pants. 
And we do. We need a kick in the pants. Because we're thinking, no, God, I'm not that good. You can send someone else. But remember what I'm saying this morning, church. It's not about getting on a boat or getting on a plane and flying halfway around the world. This morning, God could be telling you in your heart, you need to go talk to your neighbor. You need to go talk to that person you've known for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, who knows that you go to church, but you've never talked about Jesus with them at all. That's the person God is calling us to go to. And that's the person God is telling us to reach. Because we need to see what he sees. We need to see it through his lens to have that compassion and understand this commission that I have in my life and you have in your life. That means going and telling someone about Jesus Christ. But notice what we do first. We don't just go. We pray. And we pray. We pray that God would send out those who will share the good news. We pray for those who God would send out to answer the call. Listen, my prayer is there would be some in this room who don't just go to work to go to work, but you would go there to try to spread the gospel. My prayer is for students that you just don't go to school, you just don't play on a sports team, but you look at that as an opportunity to share the gospel. Because that is what God has called us to do. Jesus, and I put it in your outline this morning, Jesus beckons us to pray to the Lord of the harvest for the glorious goal. There's a goal in spreading his gospel to a lost world. The most precious gift you and I have is the good news of Jesus Christ. But church, I'll remind you this morning, you can't change people's hearts. Listen, there are a lot of hearts I'd love to change, but I can't do it. Because that's not my job. I can't change a heart. But I can point you to the person that can change your heart. And that's Jesus Christ. And that's what we are called to do. And I think sometimes the church struggles on this because we've tried before and we've failed. And because we failed, we don't want to give it another try. We don't want to do what we've seen others try to do because we saw them come short. We saw them fail. So why give it a shot? Why even try to go and share? So we pray. We pray for our friends that God would change the heart of our friends. We pray for our coworkers. We pray for each other. We talk about this. We talk about wanting an awakening. We talk about this idea of wanting revival. We say, man, what would happen if God would just, man, God would just burst open the doors and we wouldn't know how to respond. The revival would start in our hearts because revival starts with us as individuals, not as us as a church. It's an individual thing revival is. But we, I hear people all the time, man, man, revival, revival would just kick in and take off, man. This world would be changed. Church, you realize revival is not having a bunch of services, right? Revival is about the change of a person's life from the inside out. I want to leave you with a quote this morning. Reuben Torrey has written a lot about revivals, but listen to what he said. He's an evangelist from the 19th century. He said, every great, great awakening in the history of the church has been a result of prayer. Did you hear that? Every great revival is a result of prayer.
It's praying for God to move and do something. And he goes on to say, they have been great awakenings without much preaching. There have been great awakenings without absolutely no organization. But there has never been a true awakening without much prayer. You want to change the world, it starts with prayer. This morning, I remind you that if you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior this morning, you've been given a commission to go and tell, to share the gospel. But before you can go, you need to be praying. So this morning, I want to challenge you this morning. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing a hymn, The Savior is Waiting. This morning, I want to challenge you, church, during the invitation, the altars are going to be open. But I want to challenge you to come forward this morning and pray for one person you know does not know Jesus Christ, that God would give you an opportunity to share the gospel with them. That's my challenge to you this morning, church, is to pray for that one person, whoever it is, to pray for that one person that you know is lost and going to spend eternity separated in hell unless you share Jesus with them, unless you see them like Jesus saw them. Again, I go back to verse 36. Verse 36, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for, because, uh, for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep with no shepherd. This morning, I'm not asking you to think of the multitudes. I'm asking you to think about one. One. Every head bowed and every eye closed. This morning, who's your one that you need to be praying for? Who's that person in your life? It could be a family member. It can be a co-worker. It could be somebody that you see that checks out your groceries when you leave the store. It could be the person you see at the gas station every day when you go get that cup of coffee. But who is that one person you see every day and you know they're lost? Who is that one person that needs to know that there's a Savior waiting for them who loved them enough to die for their sins? Do you see and have the compassion for the lost that Jesus has? And are you willing to accept the commission? And the commission starts with prayer. Because before you can go, you've got to pray that God would open doors and give you opportunities to be able to share with that person, whoever it is. Father, this morning as we come to a time of invitation, Father, I am thankful for Adoniram and Anna Judson. Father, for the call you placed on their heart, knowing they would never see their family again. Knowing that they would endure suffering and hardships. Father, I thank you for Jim Elliott, who answered the call to go to Peru. And again, share with a group who didn't know the gospel. And Father, he would lose his life in sharing the gospel. But Father, you tell us in Scripture that to follow you could require losing our life as well, but we're doing it for the cause of the gospel. And Father, this morning, we're not asking you to put us on a plane and send us halfway around the world. Father, we're asking you to give us the boldness, Father, to give us the courage to go to that neighbor, that coworker, the person we see every day at the gas station, at the grocery store, wherever, that, Father, we would have that compassion that you have 
And Father, simply look for opportunities to have those conversations. And let them know that there's a Savior who loves them, a Savior who died for their sins. And so, Father, we pray for that this morning. Father, we pray for hearts to be open. Father, we pray for revival in our church. Yes, we want revival. But, Father, as we pray for revival this morning, we know that it starts with that word, prayer. So this morning, Father, as we come to a time of invitation, Father, a time of offering, Father, the prayer is this, that your will be done. That, Father, you would move in a way that is tangible. And, Father, you would move that we know it's you doing the moving. Father, it's not just us. And if, Father, we're not going through the motions, Father, this morning, as the challenge has been laid out to come to this altar, Father, it's not about a show, but it's because there's that one person in our life that we know is separated from you. And so, Father, we come to the altar this morning to pray for boldness, to share with that person that we love, that we don't want to see separated from you. So, Father, as we move into this time, we pray for your will to be done, and we pray it in your Son's name. Amen.